0: i
1: Special show today. At least for me, it's going to be a special show because I get to have someone on that kind of has a interesting place in my childhood. Growing up, let's flash back. Uh, we got a little interference. Nah, I'm playing off there. Okay, no big deal. Flashback 1985. It is April 1st. Yours truly here is a I was a sophomore in high school. Huge Phillies fan. My friends and I can't wait for the Sports Illustrated to come out. It's going to be giving us the breakdown of the Phillies, the dreaded Mets. God, they were just getting ready to get good. Dwight Gooden, uh, Darryl Strawberry. You had Lenny Dykstra coming up. You had just an incredible team being put together. What did Sports Illustrated report that day? They report that the Mets have found this stud pitcher in Tibet. They have found him. He has been living basically in a monastery since his parents passed away in a plane accident in Nepal. He has learned from the monks how to defy everything that we think of, gravity, logic, everything, The man can throw 168 miles per hour, and the Mets have him. That means every fourth or fifth day, the Mets are going to win. This guy is probably guaranteed a 30 and, at best, a three-loss season. As the day goes on, our teachers are talking, we're all talking, and we find out it's a hoax. That Sports Illustrated, with George Plimpton, the famous writer and renaissance man, has done a hoax on the baseball world in particular. And the person that he used to play Sid Finch, remember the name, Sid Finch, was a young Joe Burton. And you can see the photographs of him online. They're a trip, and we'll talk about it. So, Joe is my guest today, a.k.a. Sid Finch. Joe, welcome to the program. Hello, John. Good to be with you. Oh, man, I'll tell you. <laughs> you know what, I chased <laughs> you, you down. You are one of the guys on the to-be-fooled list. <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny. We, I remember standing there and, and we were by our lockers and stuff, and my one buddy was just livid. He's like, why the Mets? Why couldn't it be like the Montreal Expos or something? I'm like, well, it doesn't usually work that way. So what happens, you know, as the day goes on, finally uh, one of our teachers pointed out that it was April 1st and it was April Fool's Day. But you just didn't trick kids with this. George Plimpton just didn't pull a fast one on young kids who are baseball fans. It went as high up as general managers in the major leagues whose owners questioned them, why didn't they find them. It went to a point where I believe... A sports writer for one of the New York papers questioned why Jay Horowitz, the public relations director for the Mets, went to SI instead of to uh, his newspaper. I mean, people were really buying into it. The people who I think shouldn't have been buying into it, that's how powerful it was.
0: Well, it ended up fooling many, many more people than we ever thought it was. We thought it would just be kind of an inside joke, and uh, that'd be the end of it. But um, I think... The photograph sold the story. Plimpton's involvement with it made it fantastic. And uh, like you said, way, way um, up to the top. Well, I think you hit it right on the mark, Joe. You have
1: George Plimpton, this famous writer, and I have to keep saying renaissance man of the time period. Unfortunately, he passed away back in, I believe, 2003. The man did just about everything you could when it came to writing and other things. He was an actor. Uh, He got to play uh, different sports roles for books he wrote. He was everything. So getting him to do it and getting 14, 15 pages out of it really was the big selling point, because why would SI, this big publication, devote that much space if there wasn't something here and what i understand and maybe you can tell us i understand george Plinton was very very nervous about this whole thing
0: it seemed to be the way i mean i got into it of course on the backward end of it they needed someone to play sid and um the sports illustrated photographer assigned to the story was a friend of mine lane stewart and lane and i share a hobby of painting military miniatures, toy soldiers. I had gotten to know Lane through the hobby when he came out to do an assignment on... hobbies and one of them being painting soldiers so he shot a friend of mine and we got to know each other well and i would assist lane then when he would do assignments that might be related either to chicago where i live or uh, baseball he knew i was a big baseball fan so i had helped lane out on a number of stories before this And uh, he always knew my love of baseball, so we would try to boondoggle an assignment to help uh, for me to assist him in spring training. So this spring in 1985, he called up and he started telling me, I've got another baseball story lined up. This time it deals with the Mets. Like you mentioned, the 85 Mets were coming on strong. I'm a Cub fan, so the Cubs had... um, had that disaster in San Diego with the playoffs in 84, Leon Durham. so they were coming off a good season. Should I and say Leon Durham really no, I'm, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I keep saying
1: <laughs> Leon Durham, Joe.
0: I'm remembering. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I remember mean, Leon Durham with that ball to the legs. Oh, yes. It it's still, it's still bothers me. And uh, <laughs> so the 85 Mets, they had just signed Gary Carter. So yep. Lane started telling me about this possible story dealing with the, the Mets. Uh, this pitcher with a phenomenal fastball, 160-mile-an-hour fastball. He plays the French horn. He's got a Tibet connection. He only has a food ball uh, and a rug. He's going to be at spring training. What do you think? It sounds great. I'm in. He goes, well, get yourself a French horn and a Tibetan food ball and show up at spring training. You've got to be the guy. So I was an art teacher here in Oak Park, Illinois, and uh, I borrowed a French horn from the music teacher, I got some work boots, another Sid characteristic, he only pitched with one work boot on and the other barefoot, so I borrowed a pair of work boots from my English teacher and uh, (laughs) went to a local store and found a food ball and uh, showed up at spring training with my uh, bag of goods. Now, that's amazing. Now, Joe, how old were you
1: when this happened? You had to be, what, in your early
0: 20s? Uh, I think uh, mid-20s, maybe, late 27. I'd have to do the math. Math problems are always difficult, but 27. 27.
1: Now, when they approach you for this, now, you're a really easygoing guy, and I'll let the audience know I had a chance to spend uh, maybe a little over an hour with you when you were here in, in the Valley Forge, Pennsylvania area back in May, Uh, for one of the uh, miniature um, get-togethers that you are involved with. And we're going to talk about that later because I find it fascinating. But you're a really easygoing guy. And, you know, this isn't something that would have bothered you to be obviously involved with. But did they they pick you because you were available or because you looked like what George Clinton had in mind?
0: Well, they got Lane involved early on in the story and gave him a... a printout of it and said, what do you think about this? And uh, the, the, the puzzlement, of course, was who do we use for Sid? And um, if George was younger, most likely they just would have used George. Uh, but then again, that would have been a, term, uh, a big enough clue right away. Well, that that's not uh, a phenom. That's Plimpton himself. Uh, Lane and I... We spent some time together in Manhattan as well at the Time Life Building, and so the, the secretaries there knew us. Some of the other photographers knew me from visiting when I would be there. So um, Lane said, why don't we try Joe? Joe <laughs> <laughs> looks like the guy. He's willing to do anything. He'll be goofy enough to put on the uniform and try. Between the two of us, this should work out. And the managing editor and the secretary at the time in charge of the story um, thought it was great. So Lane approached me, and I was in. It, it is, you know, looking back on it all
1: these years now, it's been 31 years. Uh, last year, I believe, and this is how I got reacquainted with the story, uh, ESPN did a 30 for 30 shorts right. called Unhittable Sid Finch and the Tibetan Fastball. Now, I sat there and I watched that with my father, uh, I guess it was maybe early spring, and he, for some reason, did not remember the story. But I definitely did, and, and my father looks at me and goes, well, you know, you're that hyped about it. Why don't you go and, you know, see if you can get him on the show? And I said, you know, I'm going to try to do that because it just came together so well, the way it worked out. Again, George Plimpton being the writer, all of those pages dedicated to it, the Mets up and coming, it's the New York market. And, Joe, I got to say, I can't think of anybody else that could have portrayed Sid Finch other than you just because (laughs) it seemed like that's what you would find in the mountains of Tibet. I mean, they had a great backstory. I mean, plane crash. I mean, mean, they really went with it. And uh, at what, I'm trying to remember what it was, did they say at one point you actually went to Harvard? Right. And they were able to fact check that as being true.
0: If well, I they, cool. they no recall, they had no record. No of record just, okay. just being enrolled, but but of course, Sports Illustrated, in their great attention to detail, sent Lane to Harvard to photograph an empty classroom <laughs> that was supposedly my old classroom. Oh so, man! Anyone, anyone who had been to Harvard in, in the dorms there, right around the, the square, they'd recognize that being a Harvard classroom. But when we got when we got to St. Petersburg, I mean, we had a an old computer printout of Plimpton's story no it wasn't the complete story he ended up running with but enough there about the Sid's background and characters and such so Lane had some ideas of set up photographs he wanted to use he wanted my input on things we bounced ideas back and forth um he had the ideas of going down to the beach. You know, what would you do on the beach? Well, throw baseballs around. So <laughs> I think it may have been the early Saturday morning. He wanted the sun coming up with the, with that kind of easy, soft light. And, uh, this was the 7-Elevens weren't even open yet. And I remember us going <laughs> looking through garbage cans, trying to find Coke cans that we can go down to the beach and prop them up on a sand dune, and then I'd walk back you know, 60-some feet, and it's like I'd be dinging off the, the pop cans on the beach. My hat on backwards and my barefoot kicked up. And we shot things, we shot it again and again. And Lane, of course, I wear glasses, so now I've got to take my glasses off, hide them behind my other boots so they're not in the way. And um, I'm trying my best to get close to the pop cans that are farther down there. And the whole couple of days were... Setups like that, different scenarios. We thought Sid might get into. Mel Stottlemyre was fantastic. He was the pitching coach of the Mets at the time. We did scenarios. I'm talking with him about, the, you know, my fastball, and I'm, I've got a knit tie around my neck with the uniform. Uh, we set up uh, tarps around the the pitching enclosure. We were using the young guys that the Mets had. We. Spring training wasn't as big a deal as it is now, so uh, we're using Kevin Mitchell, uh, Lenny Dykstra, the young guy with the Mets, um, Troy Gooden, Jesse Arasco. Um, the, the young guys. Are, oh, this is going to be in Sports Illustrated. I didn't know if it was. We didn't know how. We thought maybe they just use one picture of me sitting underneath the Miller Huggins sign. <laughs> we had no idea what a big deal it was going to be. We wanted to present a portfolio of slides back at the office. Lane, of course, had to go back that next week and uh, show the work that we did get done, that we did accomplish. So we were able to talk ourselves into some funny situations, and uh, he got his shots. I had fun goofing around, uh, posing for them. And back in the office in New York, Mark Mulfoy and George Plimpton, they loved it. Lane presented the carousel slides, and they couldn't believe the the stuff we were able to do. Without a doubt. Joe, hold
1: a second. got to pay some yep. bills here. We're going to take a break. We're gonna come back. Okay. And i got a lot more questions. You're listening to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my guest is Joe Burton, a.k.a. Sid Finch, April 1st, 1985, hoax on the world. We'll be right back. Good morning. Welcome back to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Avery. Today, my guest is Joe Burton, a.k.a. Sid Finch. Big hoax on the world, in the baseball world in particular, Sports Illustrated cover story, April 1st, 1985. Man found in Tibet can pitch a ball 168 miles per hour. That was the story. That broke that morning when S.I. came out onto the newsstands, and Joe portrayed him and did a great job. Joe, let's go. I want to give a real quick background that uh, George Plimpton put together in particular for the book, The Curious Case of Sid Finch. Uh, According to Plimpton, Finch grew up in an English orphanage, was adopted by an archaeologist who later died in a plane crash in Nepal. and He sounds like Harrison Ford got to go in there. Um, he, after briefly attending Harvard University, he went to Tibet to learn yogic mastery of mind, body under the great poet Saint. Lama Millisarphapopia. Wow, Now, George had an incredible mind for making things up, and this is great. Instead of choosing to play the instead of um, continuing to play baseball, Uh, Sid decided to pursue the French horn and maybe play a little golf on the side. That was the story at the time. Now, the true story, uh, Sid Finch portrayed by Joe Burton. Uh, Joe, you are, you're retired now, a junior high school art teacher. Right. Oak Park, Illinois. Um, You are 6'4". You're my height. Uh, You wear a size 14 shoe. And I think that's what sold it. Now, I got—I wear a 12 and a half, 13, and for me, when I see the famous picture of you, the pick of you throwing in the sand dunes there with your bare foot and your toes spread out as they are in the one work boot on the mound, uh, that sells it for me. That sells the whole story for me.
0: Because that classic it, picture, it, oh. it really did become a, a classic photo, uh, that opening spread with the, with the foot up, spread out, the toes spread. Uh, we got a, you can't imagine the number of letters the magazine got for this story. Oh, no, no, no. I do
1: imagine it because
0: I think uh, uh Mark Mulvoy was saying that outside of a swimsuit issue, this topped the, the feedback. And at that time, of course, you had to actually write a letter. You just couldn't... Uh Email it in. Uh, but we heard from, I think it was three foot doctors that had whatever the problem was with my foot and that it could be fixed. But there was no problem with my foot. It was just, it was just the angle of how my toes looked, almost like a giant lobster claw, and uh, much to the embarrassment of my family, but uh, there they were. Yeah, but the great, and, um, oh, that later that, they, great. later that year, when I visited the Sports Illustrated offices in the Time Life building, uh, there, I, You get off on the floor um, by the editor's office, there was that photograph, almost life-size, mounted on the wall. So it, it has become a bit of a classic photo.
1: Oh, it takes on a life of its own. I mean, what helps also is the Mets players are playing with it. They have you hidden away in a batting cage where you can only see maybe a foot and a half from the bottom up, and all people see is you're barefoot and a work boot. And every so often, for what I understand, uh, there was a loud pop sound being made to obviously replicate a fastball being thrown. And then you'd have Dykstra or Hernandez or any one of those guys coming out and saying, oh, my God, we can't hit him. Where's he coming from? It got so bad. As it was said earlier, you had some owners very angry with their GMs for not finding
0: you in the mountains of Tibet. (laughs) According to Lane, uh, Lane had to shoot the uh, commissioner of baseball later that month for another related story, and he was uh, telling Lane that he had heard from a couple of general managers about, what are we going to do with Sid? (laughs) What's the Sid factor? And, uh we hadn't heard that it had reached that level but according to the commissioner he did indeed hear from some general managers the uh, it, yeah George always felt and and looking back the the photos he felt were really the convincing part that swung the story I mean, Lane Lane is such a talented photographer and he he has shot Nicholas and Ali and Pete Rose and he's mostly a, a people photographer not necessarily an event photographer um, and incredibly imaginative so the, the two of us were able to put a pretty good group of shots together but the, the, the young Mets players cooperating that was fun too and I'm going down there as a wide-eyed baseball fan so I'm walking around, it's the first day of spring training, I'm with the, with the real Mets guys going base-to-base, base, as Davey Johnson's explaining, you know, if you're going to be off first, it's what you got to do. you got to lean into it. And I'm thinking, man, it's just like the T-ball days in Oak Park with my, with the real kids, He's he's doing that with his professional baseball players, getting back to basics. And I'm in one of these pinch me moments of being there with a real team having no idea how big of a deal this is going to become
1: this is how it usually happens you get (laughs) caught up in something you didn't anticipate now you're in the whirlwind of it and boom here it is let me give the scouting report that the new york mets had put together about you mean i mean they covered everything on this hoax Full name. If anyone can actually tell me this, I would give them a now maybe a dollar. I'm not sure, but the full name: Hayden Sinharthia Finch. And they have him down as General Delivery Old Orchard, or home adjust, General Delivery Old Orchard Beach. Looks like it says Maine, but they can't be right. Yeah, that's the um, that's the uh, minor league team for the. Okay, Mets. gotcha. Uh, pitcher, right-handed. Height, 6'4", weight, 170, date of birth, 1956. Did they take this right from your driver's license? No.
0: (laughs) (laughs) One of the souvenirs I do have from the story is that actual scouting report. That's up in my my room. You should have that framed because I'm looking right
1: at it. It's excellent. Team name, none. Total games to date, zero. Everything's a zero. Here's just the regular writing now of it. Gawky string bean type, no visible injuries. Unbelievable with a exclamation point. Fastball and control. You got to see this. Now that's the key to this. If you can throw that ball over a hundred in the real world and you have control of it, then you're going to be a million-dollar player. Never played, no joke. Could be the phenom of all time. Very hard to figure. Basically, that's what they did. Then the report was July 28, 1984. And I can't see who signed it, but obviously someone from the Mets organization. And that, I think, everything that George and Sports Illustrated did, and then bringing you into it to be the character, is what sold it. Now, Joe, do you think that could be done today, or are we just in a world now where social media, mass media is just too quick?
0: Well, I think in, in 1985, if you saw a photograph of an event, it was real. You know, if we had a, a photograph of you standing next to Gary Carter, we'd, we'd know it was real. Now any photograph... <laughs> you can be standing next to Abraham Lincoln and make it look real. True. Any photograph can be manipulated. It's, it's Immediately is this... Uh, is what we're seeing true um so you've got the photoshop qualities of changing any image and then you've got the speed of the internet so without a doubt uh, probably within a day it would be out that it's it's not true remarkably when that in 85 it's interesting because you probably remember the day of the week your magazine would come and that story, when it went to press, usually I think they would close Sunday night and then it would be run off during the evening and the and the initial copies would be released to some of the, the AP and press people in New York Monday morning to New York Monday, Tuesday. Chicago, we got the magazine usually Wednesday. It came in my... Uh, mailbox on thursday it usually hit the west coast wednesday thursday so you had this uh... it it almost took four days to get distributed around the country And when that story hit monday at school we were getting phone calls from new york and going crazy monday tuesday was kind of the new york crowd wednesday thursday it hit the chicago scene and and we had local tv stations coming out to school with their radar gun and all kinds of crazy stuff going on uh and then finally the west coast thursday so it was fun to see this kind of geographical spread of of the sid news
1: i didn't think about that till you just mentioned it that because how things were Back in 1985 and how the press worked and we don't we didn't have what we have now for that quick media hit. It was like a wave starting from the East Coast going to the right. West Coast, the story. Yep. And the interesting part was probably very few people even knew of it as it broke in their area. Right. Because they, we didn't have CNN back then or it just started. It wasn't that popular. So technically... For a matter of maybe a week there, you kept getting hit repeatedly at the peak of it, questions coming to you. Now, people calling your house, people staking you out. You said people had radar guns. <laughs> they showed up with radar guns and stuff?
0: Yeah, we had a Chicago ended up making a pretty big deal about it because, you know, here the, here the guys teaching uh, – instead of throwing fastballs, he's throwing pots in his art class out in Oak Park. So they show up with their uh, – one of the guys, Jim Avila, was uh, local here in Oak Park, and I, I've taught his kids, so he's he's still at the National News now. So he came out with a radar gun, and I'm still trying to finagle opening day tickets for the Cubs, which would be in a week. And he's coming to the school, he's got his radar gun, and I've got the gym teacher to catch my fastball, and... I I throw it as quick as I can, as best as I can, to the, the teacher, and he's throwing it back. I try it again, he's throwing it back, and finally Jim says, well, Sid... I've got the radar gun, the best it shows right here, and he shows. He turns the radar gun to the camera. It's 68. What do you have to I say was going to
1: ask, did they time you at one point? And 68 was it.
0: <laughs> well, Jim's got the radar gun there at 68. He goes, what do you have to say for yourself? I said, well, Jim, you need a new radar gun, the one, and that sucker is burned out. So.
1: <laughs> it's interesting you were just off by the one, because that was the number that was quoted. And, again, another right, detail. Right. That had to be made. They couldn't say, "Oh, he throws over 165," or "We clocked him at 170."
0: It was no, 168. 168. It's yeah. so wild. I remember we were mentioning even Plimpton. If you put it down to about 125, people might believe this story. No one's going to believe it at 168.
1: That was again just the details that were, you know, taken in and then implemented to make sure the story was followed. Now I have to ask you. There's two favorite pictures of mine. Of you, besides uh, the one where you're pitching in the dunes, you're sitting on the rocks overlooking the ocean with the horn, with the French, playing horn. The French horn. Okay, that shows the quirkiness of Sid Finch. But the camel, who came up with the camel?
0: Well, Lane and I, Lane and his wife, uh, an Egyptian friend of mine and a teacher I worked with, we had happened to be in Egypt at the same time the year before. So that photograph is actually uh, Lane shot of me at the at the pyramids, riding a camel. And then, because I wanted to buy a camel saddle, I went back to the village where the, my uh, camel driver was from. And that's that's a group of the Egyptian family where I'm standing in the middle of with a whole uh, know, like a cast of maybe 15 family members and such. And so Lane incorporated some of these Egyptian travel pictures into the carousel of flies that he presented to George and um, Mark Mulvoy. And Plimpton loved it, so he incorporated the Egyptian stuff into there, too. Oh, what a perfect thing, Sid. I, I, yeah, I apologize. I went back to Egypt, <laughs> I, I went back to this village in the Camel Driver and showed them the picture of the magazine, and of course, they have no understanding at all of of our game of baseball and such, so there's, there's an entire village in Egypt that's convinced it is real because <laughs> they've got the magazine to prove it, uh, and there's Sultan and his family in the photograph in the magazine, too. I love it. Joe, we're going to take another break, and we're going to come back, and i got some
1: more questions. Then I want to get into your passion uh, of uh, designing uh, miniature soldiers and so forth. I know that is something you love, and I want to get into that. You're listening to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Aberly. Today I have on Joe Burton, a.k.a. Sid Finch, from 1985, one of the biggest hoaxes ever pulled off in the world, not just the baseball world. We'll be right back. Good morning. Welcome back to Life on Eddie. I'm your host, John Avery. Today, my special guest, Joe Burden, a.k.a. Sid Finch. You can go back to the 1985, April 1st, Sports Illustrated article, and you can read about the man from Tibet with the 168-miles-per-hour baseball or fastball, however you want to word it there, and you can learn about one of the biggest hoaxes ever pulled off. Joe... How has this followed you since the day it broke, April 1st, 1985? I mean, obviously there was a peak there of when the world wanted you, but the world still does want you because (coughs) I went to find you, and I have to believe if this had hit right now, uh, you might have to escape to another country for a while because of all the people that would be coming at you.
0: Well, it's just, it's really been an enjoyable journey. I, I've had fun with it, and it's uh, and uh, you know that the first summer was fantastic because the the Mets really once they saw how big of a story it was going to be, the Mets had fun with it. Uh, that next week when the story came out, the April the April first cover date anyway mm-hmm. on the magazine. Is about a week early, so the, the magazine was actually hitting the week before April first. Mm-hmm. And then the Mets called me up. Uh, you know, we were playing it kind of low-keyed when we were down there with the real guys, and now they saw the story. That, oh, you got to come back down to St. Petersburg. We've got the last. Game of spring training. and <laughs> It'd be Sid Finch Day. Can you can you make it? Can you come down for Sid Finch Day? <laughs> and I said, they said we're, we're going to have bands. We got uh, the sports network covering it. We've got ABC News. They're going to send a crew. Can you come down? And I said there's only one catch. Oh, what's that? Sid? What's that? I get to keep the uniform. You did keep it. So I, I was able to you know, get a uniform out of the Mets, and that was fun. We went down there, and, of course, they had the bands playing, and the uh, um, microphone set up kind of like a Lou Gehrig deal where I'm announcing my retirement. Uh, some statement Plimpton had read about, I'm not going to play baseball because of the deception involved. Instead, I'm going to take up the singular game of golf uh, and and be more focused on just myself and that you know, not telling the people what I'm going to throw them and all that. So uh, this is a crazy statement. And Lane was down there covering it, then as a press conference with with me there. And he said, look, this is your day. There's no script. You just go out there and wing it whatever you want. And um, (laughs) even at that time... We had people that still believe the story. We had a couple of baseball kids from a college that said they were just in their car. Coming down to spring training, they've got spring break going on. They've been in a car for three days. They're there. They can't believe I'm giving up baseball. Can they give them some tips about throwing a fastball? <laughs> I said, yeah, just take your, take your one shoe off the coach will let you do that. But again, at least five miles an hour. <laughs> <laughs> reporters just couldn't believe it. Then they were asking how Lane and I met, and I'm telling them, Lane and I, uh, we met doing the the Riyadh to Jeddah camel race in Saudi Arabia a few <laughs> years ago, and, and uh, how do you spell Riyadh, Sid? And then, <laughs> Lane and Lane and I just had good fun with it that day. Oh, and that night, great. then ABC News World Tonight. I remember sitting back in my hotel room, and there's the flash with Ted Koppel, the next story coming up on World News Tonight. There's a picture of me wearing my Metscaps. cap. So. <laughs> that
1: is great. Now I have to ask, did you keep the boot? I do have the boot. You have yeah. the boot. So did you yep. keep the other parts of the uniform you did wear when you were portraying Sid Finch throughout movie?
0: Yeah, Spring I pretty Spring? much got the whole thing. Because then they wanted, uh, in the year 2000, Plimpton revisited the story for the Where Are They Now issue okay. with uh, Perry on the cover. So he called me up and said, we want to we want to put you on the road again. Can What can you do? Well, I was going down to a soldier show in Tulsa, and uh, I said, man, you got all these exotic locations. Can't you get me to better Nepal or something fun? He goes, well, let me, let me give you a call back. So we ended up doing a cow chip throwing contest in Tulsa. <laughs> and with a lot of the soldier people, I said, um, Lane Metis down in Tulsa. He was in, living in London at the time, so he flew into Tulsa to shoot that story with a, sort of a Tulsa farm with a windmill in the background, and we had cow chip banners printed up and a a bunch of soldier people from that weekend in the background and I just whipped cow chips for about an hour while Lane was taking pictures and uh, I got pretty good at actually throwing the cow chips.
1: There is competition for that you can go and compete in uh, cow chip throwing uh, uh, games so if you're interested.
0: Well the fun Boondago was he got me to get over to London and for cricket because in this rematch in the in the where are they now story he's got me trying out for the english olympic javelin (laughs) throwing team oh that explains the picture now i saw that i'm going why so lane got a a javelin and uh, so we were in the in the sheep fields of rye england throwing a javelin and i'm hoping jesus don't 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 let me nail some sheep out there who's you know joyously walking the fields of rye eating clover, and he's going to get a javelin in his back. But no animals got hurt in the making of that story.
1: Now, I, I want to bring up what's funny because we were talking about your 68 miles per hour fastball that you actually <laughs> threw. Um, You're not being the most athletic person. Uh, you've been married to your wife, Gloria, for a number of years. You have two sons, and when we were talking, you were very, very proudly telling me uh, about both of your sons being collegiate athletes. Am I correct again on that?
0: Well, one son, he played volleyball throughout high school okay. and um, got into that down at Butler University as a club sport. Okay. And my younger son, Philip is a football player, and he's now entering his sophomore year out at Dartmouth. So he's an, off- he's an offensive lineman.
1: So that's interesting. Sid Finch produced two athletic children.
0: It's hard to believe when they look at both Gloria and me. Where did these two come from? I have to be.
1: I saw a picture. Your wife is beautiful, but I did look at the two of you, and I'm going. I would not think athletic kids.
0: But yeah, we get puzzled by it too. Too much milk in the refrigerator, I think. But, it's.
1: Uh-huh. but that leads me now to getting into your passion. Um, when we met back in late May, I think it was late May, uh, we were at the Valley Forge uh, Casino right. there. You were out, which was, the timing was perfect. We had just connected maybe uh, several days earlier. You are very much into and have been into uh, making, designing, and uh, showcasing miniature soldiers. Uh, you're, you are, and you were an uh, artist. You were a school teacher and in middle school as an art teacher. But I asked you this last, and I got to ask again for the audience, you got big hands like me. How do you do such fine work? The frustration would get to me, and I'd probably de- like decapitate one of the soldiers out of frustration. <laughs> so how do you do that? Well, you and can't blame it on your big hands. I aunt. have, have to blame uh, it. On, no, no, no. You might blame it on being clumsy. So well, is, you can, you can. Someone's going to go down. It. It's not going to be me. That's all I can say. But no, how how are you able to concentrate the way you do. It's an obviously love, big passion for you. And how did you get into it? I mean...
0: Well, I got interested in the... I think like many of us who, who do, when I was young, I, I've always been interested in military history, primarily in the Middle East and Napoleon in Egypt and Lawrence in Arabia, that whole Western interest in the Middle East. And uh, the toy soldiers that were available when I was growing up, weren't of that subject, so we'd have Civil War and World War Two, and I started to convert or change those subjects into... Um figures of historical periods I was interested in. And there was a group here in Chicago, there still is, that I'm actively involved in. It's the Military Miniature Society of Illinois, or MMSI for short. And we have an annual show here in Chicago that's coming up in October. And um, there's groups of people that do this really throughout uh, our country and pretty heavily in Europe. So as I got more and more involved in this I would do some of these regional shows like the, the one I saw you out towards Philadelphia mm-hmm. and you know you meet other hobbyists and historians that are interested in the same um, hobby the, the, the same art form
1: now it's interesting because when we were walking around the expo and uh, you were showing and explaining to me the different artists and what their specialties are and it, it I I think when I went to meet you, I I, I think my preconception was going to be, oh, it's going to be all soldiers, which was fine with me being ex-military, so I was looking forward to it. But then I saw, as you were showing me, of course, there are people who go into fantasy worlds as far as dungeons, dragons, space things, and the work is so elaborate and detailed and people, you, trust me, you can't imagine uh, some of the things that are done, especially on the military level. They will recreate a battle, and it is down to the exact moment, the exact things that are happening. And I asked Joe about price. It's, it's kind of an interesting hobby that you're in. It's not like sports memorabilia where everyone's looking to make a buck. The artist appears to come first in how they view their work, I get the feeling they'll sell their piece to people they feel will appreciate it the most. It might not be the person with the
0: most money. Yeah, it it seems to be a lot of that. I've been fortunate. I've been pretty successful at it over the years, and I have a, a number of collectors that are always interested in what I will do, not necessarily this is what I would like you to do. So I'll I'll get subjects I'm interested in that I'll research thoroughly and then do the sculpting and figure out uh, the the type of clothing that person will be wearing for that particular campaign or time of his life and uh, sculpt that and paint it as realistically as I can. And many of the people that do reach a, a pretty good level of success, they're able to do mostly what they would like to do and the collectors are happy to get whatever that subject might be so many of mine aren't military I've mm -hmm. done figures of Claude Monet Vincent Van Gogh um, Ernest Hemingway um, Charles Lindbergh, I've done a a lot of civilian things, like a 1900 tourist in Egypt on a camel with a camera around his neck, and he's being chased by uh, two Egyptians trying to sell him a rug, so I I tend to do more civilian, human interest types of uh, figures. Others do historical military ones, like the ones you've seen, and then, of course, the fantasy stuff—the the, the orcs and dorks crew. And, you know, uh, they can have great fun with it. Some of the best modelers are some Greek guys that are doing this just fantastic things with fantasy, uh, Greek guys, Egyptian mythology. Uh, uh, you know, inspiration from Tolkien or even uh, Game of Thrones. Um, Wonderful things going on. Now so next year, in 2017, we're having a World Expo. This is a gathering of worldwide modelers that will be coming here in Chicago. And we do this every three years. We've had shows in Paris and Stresa, Italy, and Switzerland. So our group centered here, we're hosting it uh in 2017, so we should have a good gathering of, of uh, hopefully several hundred of these people from, from really around the world, and uh, total attendance would be over a thousand at this uh, weekend in July 2017.
1: Now, you, as we spoke last night, real quick pre-interview, but we've spoken a lot already. Uh, before that, some of your work has ended up in. Uh, Some what famous people's collections, you were telling me.
0: Or I don't want to yeah, point out names. Yeah, even through the hobby, it's interesting on who you do meet. And one of my good friends, Shep Payne, he's just passed away a year ago. But his, he was really an inspiration for many of us. And when we would go to shows together out in Philadelphia, one of the people that would come to see whatever we had going uh would be andrew wyatt andrew and and his wife Betsy lived in Chads Ford near yeah. where the show site was and he and betsy and sometimes Jamie would come and um they loved collecting pieces that we've done uh In Andrew's studio now, Andrew passed away just a couple years ago, but in his studio are several pieces that Shep had had completed for him. Um, Malcolm Forbes was a big collector of soldiers, so he had some of mine. Um, Peter O'Toole had one of the Lawrence figures I did. Um, I met Charlton Heston because he was interested. He he played a character, Gordon, General Gordon, who... um, British adventurer, soldier, who was active in Egypt and the Sudan in the 1880s. He starred as Gordon in the movie Khartoum. So he had a, a figure of Gordon that I had done for him. So it's it's a wide range of people that even collect these types of things.
1: when you make them and I didn't get a chance to Mm -hmm. ask you this again what I touched on earlier people purchasing um, commissioning you or even other artists it's really a hit or miss it's a lot of just what I could tell by being there for a little bit and talking with you it's kind of however the artist feels what do you do with most of the the work that you come up with most of the figures do you keep them at home and that's Your personal collection? Are they gifts? I mean, with that kind of gift... I usually keep the last one I
0: did. Okay. The the last one I complete, I usually have there because then if people come over, I can show them what I've done. And then as I make something new, then that one can go out and uh, I'll sell to one of the collectors that want my work. Now, definitely curious
1: on this. Your kids ended up athletic. Did they get your artistic skills? (laughs)
0: Got to ask that well, one. Now the, for, for a long answer, um, my my wife is head of the European painting department at the Art Institute of Chicago. Okay. So whenever we travel, we're doing some of the museums and so forth. But uh, I've been involved in art my whole life. My two sons, they really <laughs> appreciate both what Gloria and I do, but they don't do much of it. They, No, they'll recognize some of the major artworks. Of you know, we'll take them to Paris and the museums. They'll know know some of the famous artworks, but they're real good at picking out their favorite pet shops along the quay, and they know where they get a decent crepe. So, (laughs) Uh,
1: well, that's okay because my father was a draftsman engineer. And in my freshman year of high school, I took drafting, and I realized in like two days I didn't get those skills. I did not. I do not have the skills to draw anything. Matter of fact, yeah, think, my handwriting's atrocious. So,
0: <laughs> I think they're proud of what we do. Good. And uh, you know, when, and they were—they weren't around when this whole story came up. I didn't even know Gloria yet, so it was all new to Gloria when I met her. And who? Uh, <laughs> What's the the Sid stuff about? We're walking down Michigan (laughs) Avenue uh, in spring of uh, 86, and baseball season was just starting. I'm walking by the Art Institute taking glory to lunch, and these kids come by. They've got Cubs caps on. They're hanging out the window. They're yelling, hey, Sid, hey, Sid. They're pointing at me, and I wave back. And Gloria goes, "What's all that about?" So well, I'll tell you during lunch.
1: <laughs> that's great, though. I mean, well, that's a great for a you know, great date too. Topic. I mean, who are you? There's a right. the whole thing. You know? <laughs> There's a whole like side of yourself. And I want to say now, this Sid Finch lives on. I mean, for ESPN thirty for thirty to right. put together one of those shorts, uh, George Plimpton did a great book. Um, about Sid Finch, the curious case of Sid Finch, you can still find it online. I suggest Amazon.com. There's still a lot of great uh, photos out there of you. People can still find the Old Sports Illustrated articles. There was a baseball card made of you.
0: Yeah, there's a, just to touch briefly with, uh, with Plimpton, getting to know George Plimpton mm-hmm. through this whole story was fantastic. And we would meet up when book signings might take him to Chicago or I would be in New York we'd get together. you know maybe once a year or two and, uh, and that was really truly one of the benefits personally that came out of the story was getting to know him getting to be a, 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 one of the many friends of his. Um, and the, the first time I met him, he had baseball cards. we went uh, I got a call. do you want to take part in a roast of George Plimpton? this was soon after the story came out and i had not met george plimpton yet so uh, i said yeah come on out we're at the regis hotel in new york and you know we're gonna have athletes that he's written about and we want you so i get out there. as a black tie affair and at my table then is floyd patterson and his wife oh wow and, and um uh, nick petrosani from the detroit lions and, and Paper Lion was another one of Plimpton's books. Jerry Cheevers from the Boston Bruins. So i <laughs> got, and again as a sports fan, I'm loving it. And of course, this is like Sid's first public appearance with <laughs> Plimpton. And I'm getting to meet him too. So just a, a just a totally, truly wonderful night. And uh, Plimpton hands me a stack of these baseball cards. So we, so when I get back to school, kids are going to love this. So when we get back home, I'm looking at the cards. I'm passing some out. I'm going to have to try and get some of these. There's a phone number on the back of this card. I give the number a call, explain who I am to the guy that answers the phone. And he goes, oh, that's Sid story. That I know that Sid story. That story was great. He's asking me all these questions about it. So obviously he read the story, knew about it, knows about Plimpton's connection with it. And out of politeness, I just asked, well, and what's your name? He goes, well, I'm Jim Bouton. That's right, Jim Bouton. That's right. We got a couple of good right-handers talking to each other. And I had just revisited Balfour maybe the week before, so all that was fresh in my mind. And his goofy, funny, aloof stories with the Astros. On. So we just talked again and again for a long time, having a good, good conversation. Him telling stories and me telling more. Joe, I, I, unfortunately, I got I have to end it. And believe
1: me, you know I don't want to end it. Somewhere here there's a part two for us. Okay. I believe that. Um, I want to thank you again for coming on. I want to thank you for being so kind to me at the uh, Valley Forge Casino back in May, signing my baseball and talking with me so freely and showing me uh, the different uh, artists, how, with their work and everything else. I really enjoyed it. And I think I've made a fast friend here. We'll be talking at some point again. I know that. Joe, have Absolutely a good well. weekend. All the best. Oh, my, listen, I, I know I'm going to be talking again. I really enjoyed it. Have a good weekend. And when you're back out here next year, let's connect, please. I'd appreciate it.
0: I look forward to it. Thanks so Thanks, much, man. Tom. Bye-bye.